walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 54. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. At age 13, Bernadette Subaru moved back to her birthplace, a small town near the French Pyrenees, in order to attend school. Her life to that point had been difficult. Her father lost an eye in a mill accident and was subsequently laid off. The family then lost their home, forcing them to actually live for a time in the former town jail. Desperate to feed her family, her father was arrested stealing food, though he was subsequently released. Adding illness to insult, Bernadette fell ill with cholera for a time, an experience that would leave her health compromised moving forward. Not long after her return to her hometown, Bernadette, her sister, and a friend ventured down to a nearby grotto in order to gather sticks. As the story goes, she saw a soft glow above a rose bush, followed by the sudden appearance of a beautiful girl. That girl called to her, but Bernadette was scared and was silent in response. Upon returning home, Bernadette shared the vision with her mother, who beat her for uttering such fictions, all the while fearful that her daughter was experiencing hallucinations. Three days later, Bernadette returned to the grotto with friends. She was entranced once more by the beautiful girl. Her friends, who didn't see the girl, were terrified for Bernadette and ran for help. A miller responded to their call, but his attempts at intervention were futile. Bernadette's attention couldn't be broken. Her smile couldn't be shaken. Her body couldn't be moved. In the days that followed, the beautiful girl asked Bernadette to come daily for 15 days, and the girl duly appeared on 13 of those. By the end, Bernadette's entourage had grown from two to thousands. The town was thrown into upheaval. The police commissioner interrogated Bernadette, An angry crowd railed against this abuse. Bernadette, though, was undeterred. She soon discovered a spring in the grotto. Days later, she performed what many regarded as an act of miraculous healing. And finally, after a lull in the action, she returned to the grotto on March 25th, 1858, the Feast of the Annunciation, whereupon the beautiful girl declared herself to be the Immaculate Conception, the Virgin Mary. The town, of course, was Lourdes, France, and 200 million pilgrims later, it stands today as one of the most visited Christian pilgrimage sites in the world. And the reality is, it's not that far from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, just 150 kilometers of walking away. In this episode, we'll take a look at Lourdes from two different perspectives. First, we'll hear from Marlene Watkins the foundress of the Our Lady of Lourdes Hospitality North American Volunteers Organization. Marlene is responsible for bringing groups of volunteers and pilgrims to Lourdes from across North America and beyond. And she has deep experience with the particular practices and rituals of the holy town. After that, I'm joined by one of my former students, Lauren Selden, who is part of a group that I led a few years back on the Chemin Saint-Jacques, beginning in Le Puy-en-Velay, However, we deviated from the GR65 in the town of Lectour, 
in order to walk through Lourdes before finally rejoining the GR65 just before Saint-Jean. We reflect on our time in Lourdes as walking pilgrims and also the route we followed. It's a fun episode, a lot of laughs, and like a good day of pilgrimaging, it ends with chocolate. Marlene Watkins is the foundress of the Syracuse Diocese and the first volunteer from the Our Lady of Lourdes Hospitality North American Volunteers Organization. Thanks for speaking with me, Marlene. And, and let's start here. What first drew you to Lourdes and this commitment to volunteering at the shrine? Yeah, so we have a three-pronged mission, I guess you could say, is to bring the very sick to Lourdes from outside of Europe and to share the message of Lourdes and to serve the sick from around the world in Lourdes. And I really didn't know much about Lourdes. My best friend had her business card plucked out of a fishbowl at a big pharma company. <laughs> and she said she wanted to go to Lourdes. I said, I love that story with the three little kids. That's Fatima, Portugal. It's a different century. Um, <laughs> same lady, different dress. You know, so... <laughs> And I had a tremendous experience on the whole pilgrimage. I'd never been on a pilgrimage before that we kind of cobbled together all these different places that she wanted to go. And the places she was picking had incorrupt saints. Those are saints that when they die, their body doesn't decay. And she read this book and she wanted to go to these different places. My husband's a convert and he called it the Catholic dead body tour. <laughs> and he wanted to get his shirts made with like the, the roster on the back. So she had picked Bernadette. So I first actually met Bernadette, so to speak, before I went to Lourdes. And I just fell in love with Bernadette. She just really became my heavenly best friend. And, and my friend that won the tickets, her best friend was Teresa Vizieu. She already had one. She was named with her name, Teresa. So we went to Lourdes and I had that profound experience. It was really life-changing. It was an incredible grace. And I came out of there just really, really so changed. It was such a tremendous blessing to me that my husband said he dropped off one wife at the airport and he picked up the new <laughs> wife like I got a free upgrade at the airport when, when I came back. He said, hey, do you know how many husbands would like to go get a new wife at the airport? And so he just joked with me about it. But it was that profound of a change in my life. It just really was extraordinary. And then much to my surprise, a year later, I wound up taking and going with two other women that I love who really were in need of some healing and some grace. And so we decided to go to Lourdes. We waited in line for days. It was so crowded again. And it can be that way at Lourdes, of course, not now during the pandemic. But, you know, in the past, there's, you know, millions of people go there every year. And people were in the line and they were trying to get in. And we just couldn't get in. It was just so crowded. And so then finally on the last day we were there, we we're going to have to fly to Paris the next day. And in desperation, I begged the man in charge. He was guarding the place like Fort Knox, you know. <laughs> you know, how do they get in? I didn't know they had a special entrance for the sick. And I flapped my wings, you know, my arms like a bird. And I wrote on my hand 5,000 kilometers and held it up. <laughs> we flew this far. So he motioned over to a woman and she said, can you touch your toes? strange reaction. And I did. I bent over immediately and touched my toes. But there was a reason why. She had wanted to know two things, but I didn't understand this until much later. Was I physically able? And was I willing to do whatever was asked of me without hesitation? And when I bent over and said, I still can touch my toes. I was 45. And she said, come with me this day 
date the sick and dying, and I give you my word, those you love will come in. And so I said to the two of me, you wait in here, I'm going to pull you in from the other side. And so I went inside, and it was profound. It was just amazing. I'm the mother of five boys, so I always say I live life with the feet up, you know. <laughs> so to be with all of these women of different ages, young, old, it was like giving the privilege to bathe and assist your your sisters, your daughters, your mothers, your aunts, your grandmothers, your great-grandmothers. It was just this extraordinary experience. And of course, I thought everybody worked there. I think I was more wet than all of the people who went into the tubs at the end of the shift, but <laughs> it was amazing. And the two women did come in to the baths separately, not together. And statistically, the odds of both of them coming into the bath on what was to become the record number of women bathed in the history of Lourdes, the chances of that, the two of them both coming into piscine number four, there's 10 piscines, it's really amazing. And so I had the great privilege to give both of them a bath, and it changed the way that one lives her life in the other world, and it completely changed the way that one woman lives her life now. So it was just amazing and tremendous. So at the end of the shift, everybody at the beginning before I was called in and trying to figure out what they were doing and try to watch and learn, I didn't know what I was doing. I couldn't understand the instructions, and I'm sure I was not the best helper, (laughs) but I spoke English, and 50% of the the people coming into the baths speak English. Mm-hmm. Only 10% of the volunteers at the time spoke English. So it was beneficial for me to be there because I could help the pilgrims. And that's what it's all about. It's about helping the people who come there to get into the baths. So we all kneeled down, kissed the floor like Bernadette in the grotto, and it's holy ground for miracles happen in the baths. And then we prayed. So at the end of the shift, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So I did the same thing. I prayed and then I kneeled down to kiss the floor. And when I did, I felt like a like my chest expanded, like somebody had breathed into it. And I promised Our Lady I would return in one year with 10 good, holy Catholic American women. I had no idea why I said that. I mean, I observed earlier, I thought, you know, it'd be a lot more efficient here if they hired people who spoke English, you know, like so in my own American thinking. So I hadn't thought about it. I didn't buy the first ticket and I didn't buy the second ticket. You know, Teresa won the first set and somebody gave me the other one to go with the two women. So it wasn't my thinking that I was ever going to return ever again anyway. But I made that promise. And when I went home and told my husband, he said, yeah, I've got a great debt to that lady over there in Lourdes. So he said, you can find 10 women crazy enough to do it. Because by that point, I had come to understand that these were not paid professionals or staff. These were volunteers who came and served in the sanctuary to help the pilgrims. And they're really, they're the hidden miracle of Lourdes. They're the real secret sauce, so to speak, that keeps everything glued together over there. They're giving this service. There's about 8,000 volunteers that are members of the Hospitality Notre Dame de Lourdes, which is the mother hospitality of the Sanctuary of Lourdes. And then it takes about 8,000 volunteers to come and they serve for one week or two weeks, very dedicated, give themselves totally to whatever the sanctuary needs. And then at the end of the time, they pack up and go home and somebody else comes in. So it's imagine, like Disney World, imagine if here's this beautiful place and you've been there, you know how wonderful it is. But imagine if Disney had all different employees in the week who don't all speak the same language. (laughs) And at the end of the week, they're all going to (laughs) quit. And another brand new group is going to come next week. And it's worse than this. They don't get paid to do it. They have to pay to go do it. You have to pay your own way. (laughs) It wouldn't work. What makes this work is it's a grace. 
it's just an extraordinary experience. But at this point, there was about, almost 20 years ago, there was about 270 Lord's Hospitalities, but they were all in Europe. So Lord's Hospitality is an association in the Catholic Church, but they were all in Europe. But it was the right time for there to be one outside of Europe, almost 150 years later. So at that point, if somebody was sick and they really wanted to go to Lourdes, but they didn't live within Europe, it would be really hard to have to try to figure out to do it on their own. And for most people, that would be too daunting. And so, you know, we were inspired there to see number four on Ascension Thursday, 2001. And I did have the privilege to return with 10 good Holy Catholic American women. I didn't fit the criteria. I was number 11, and um, (laughs) brought a priest with us who spoke English so we could have mass and spiritual direction. And it was extraordinary. And it was from there that we were born. So when you first went with this organization, it was just leading a group of volunteers. Is that correct? The third time I went is when I went with 10 good Holy Catholic American women, and we went to volunteer in the baths at Lourdes. And then from there... In the sanctuary, of course, we stuck out like sore thumbs. There were never 10 <laughs> Americans who showed up. As a matter of fact, at that time, there were only 16 Americans out of the 8,000 volunteers. They were so rare. Wow. And so people would say to me, hey, do you know Sue from Seattle? <laughs> I <would> say, <laughs> if I lived in Seattle, I probably wouldn't know Sue. It's a big city. And then one day, about four or five years later, I met a volunteer, and I looked at her name tag, and I said, are you Sue from Seattle? And she said, are you Marlene from New York? (laughs) (laughs) That's how rare we were. There was, there's not very many of us. So there were only 16 at the time. Yeah. So when we came as a group of 10 and we had no idea what we were doing and we were just there to serve and it was hard. It was not easy and a lot to overcome, but they saw that we had come to do this and they called me into a meeting and I must've looked frightful. You know, I was wet, my hair was sticking up. I get called in this very important formal meeting. And they tell me to go home and get more Americans and to come back and to become a Lord's Hospitality. It was all in French. It was three men. And there was like watching a tennis match for me. I was listening to them all talk. They're making these decisions and I'm seated and they're standing over me. And I finally, in the end, I, I knew I was going to have to, they weren't going to let me out of there. I was going to have to acquiesce. And I tried to talk them out of it. I said, you know, and here they've been doing this almost 150 years, Dave, and I'm yeah. going to tell them what to do. I'm so American. <laughs> I'm going to tell them what to do. They say, do this, do that. And I said to them, well, let me tell you what you need. I said, what you need is a rich woman who's married to a doctor, who's friends with a bishop. And I went on to tell them all these things, and that's who they should go find. And then they had this little confab, you know, they had together, and they turned around, and they said, shame on you. That's not the story of Bernadette. No, it's you. You go back and get some more. And so at one point I thought, there's no way I can do this. I was quiet and they gave me a minute to collect myself. And I thought, oh, with God, all things are possible. And I actually turned over, no joke, and looked over my shoulder to see if he was standing there. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe God's standing there because I said, with God, all things are possible. I'll do what I can. And they said, okay, you can go now. So they sent me back to see if more women would come and volunteer. And they said, and get lots of men, lots of American men. And so from that, the things started to begin. But, you know, I'm a housewife. I don't know anything about canon law or public associations of the Christian faithful or about organizations or corporate structure. And how <laughs> it all came together in a grace. It kind of developed and grew on its own, like a little baby that has all its fingers, toes, and a personality 
an association, a church, has a charism. You know, our charism is love. It's the center of it is love. Everything we do is centered out of love, and we express our charism like family. And a family, if you look at our insignia, it's got a gold ring around it, like the wedding ring. And so everything we do is like a family. So we don't have a corporate structure that they show an organization chart. We have a family tree, for example. And the way we are built is volunteers, and that's what we are, is to share and live the message of the Lord's at Lourdes and at home. And so that's what began to grow. So the very next year when I came back, I think it was maybe nine times with 166 people. And that included sick, that included youth, that included university students, and that included adults of all different ages coming in all these different ways. And then they said, it was kind of a comical meeting, but they um, were trying to speak English for me because my high school French is so bad. My grandparents are French speakers, but my grandfather died before I was born. So I just knew the tip, you know, the simple things like the Hail Mary mm-hmm. and sit down and shut up. That tells you what kind of kid I was. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know how to say that in French. That was it. So he tried to speak in English to me and it, was, it became very kind of comical because the priest sitting with me knew how to read and write in canon law in French, but he didn't know how to speak it. And he said, very proud of himself to be speaking English. We're watching you carefully, closely, and we can see that you are a fruit. And I said, thank <laughs> you, because I knew that he meant well. I didn't know what he meant, but I knew he was kind. And he said, and you are a nothing and a nobody. And I said, yes, yes, that's so true. Everything that's happening is not because of me. It's because, and well, the priest next to me, this canon lawyer, who happened to be with us at that week, he was shocked that they were insulting me, calling me a fruit who was a nothing and a nobody. And he did not like that. And you could tell, well, the man on the other side of the table, who also happens to be an attorney, I think, he's a notaire in the north of France. He could see the priests upset. So he switched immediately to French. And when he did, he said it so beautifully. He said, we are watching you for this year and we can see the beautiful fruit. And even though you have no means or wealth to do this, and you're not known, you're not well-known. So even though you have no means and you're not well-known, these people are coming. It must be a grace. And therefore, we ask you to go home to your bishop and ask him to become a Lord's hospitality. And so that's how, you know, it's through the church, all the graces flow, the priest at Lord said to us. So I had already asked my bishop if we could go over there the first time. I just felt very restless. I don't think I should be doing something like this if I don't get permission. And so I made an appointment. I was afraid to go alone. So my husband went with me and we went before the bishop and the poor guy is probably terrified of what we were going to say to him. I had no idea what we were going to ask him. (laughs) And I asked him if we could take people to Lord's France to serve in the sanctuary and we would like his blessing. And then my husband and I, boom, dropped to our knees and knelt down right in front of us because we weren't going to take too much time the first time officially meeting our bishop in his office like this. And not very many people go to their bishop's office. And we knelt down and he blessed us. And then he looked at me and he said, Marlene, you can get up now and go to Lourdes. Because I didn't know what I was supposed to do next. He said, go. And so I did. And I went, you know, with all of the people. And then the next year I had to come back. I said, hey, they want us to be this thing, you know, <laughs> so, this Lord's hospitality. And he kept on encouraging and helping. And so he actually erected us as a public association of Christian faithful and then continued to foster and nurture us with good counsel and good advice. And we grew amazingly. I mean, it's really extraordinary. And people came and they volunteered and they just realized what an extraordinary privilege it was to serve in this holy place. 
you know, it was hard, but it was a lot of fun. And then there's, you know, some practical things like, you know, meeting with tax accountants and CPAs <laughs> and you get a tax deduction for going over to volunteer. Hmm. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. So, you know, people could spend money to go on a vacation and that's wonderful. But if you take your time and, and go to Lord the Holy Place, you can write it off. <laughs> but that's not why people do it. That's a good tip. Yeah, it's not why they do it. They do it because it's so extraordinary and it is wonderful. And the Pyrenees Mountains, of course, are absolutely beautiful, as you know, a beautiful place to be. So let's talk more about this experience as a volunteer. I'm sure it's hard to distill it down, but to the best you can, what's a typical day in the life of a Lourdes volunteer? Well, we actually surrender ourselves, whether we're on a pilgrimage with the sick or whether we're a youth or a young person or a university student coming to serve either the sanctuary or the pilgrimage. And any of those, what we agree to do is to surrender our hands and feet, as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, and give ourselves that day to whatever is needed of us. So sometimes our mornings begin very early for the men. They go to the train station and the airport to meet the pilgrims that are coming in that have special needs on wheelchairs and stretchers. So they might have a 5 o'clock a.m. airport call, or they might have a 6 a.m. train call. Wow. And then they might not have anything for two or three more hours again. And then they might have to be in the sanctuary helping with the international mass, or they might be in the Eucharistic procession helping to guide it. So imagine tens of thousands of people who maybe have never seen a Eucharistic procession before in their life, like me, I never even knew what they were. And now all of a sudden, they don't all speak the same language, and they're supposed to be in an orderly and holy way proceeding through the length of the sanctuary, 125 square miles it is about, and they're going to process through. So they guide all of these holy things today, candlelight procession at night, and all of these things. So their service is sort of like the swing in the theater, Mm -hmm. where you kind of have to know all the different roles of the different people, the different songs that they sing, so to speak. So they have to know everything from lifting people on stretchers and and helping them into the wheelchairs from the train station, the airport, to the baths. They have to know all of this Hmm. and also how to lead people in these different activities in the sanctuary. So they're kind of like on a swing shift. And that's the San Josef, the St. Joseph's service. And for the women, they can do one of two things. One is they can serve in the baths that I talked about where they're helping women to come in and experience the water at Lourdes helping them to dress and dress, and it's always very modest, covered, helping to bathe in the water. And that's what they do in a morning shift and an afternoon shift. Or there's the Akai, and the Akai is a special place of welcome. It's like a cross between a hospital and a hotel. It's the place where the sixth day when they come on pilgrimage with their hospitalities. It's not where people just check in on their own. It's, you know, with the hospitality because there's no staff there of doctors or nurses or caregivers. There's no housekeeping service, so to speak, that comes in and provides everything. So you come with your organized hospitality, like we do at Lord's Volunteers, and we bring a team of volunteer doctors and nurses and people who serve our meals and make our beds and take care of everything. So that service over there is often centered around the meal times, the three meal times, and also the cleaning times. If you're serving inside the Akai Nusram, it's 900 beds, or the Khamri Sanfrey, that is about 400 beds either of those services. But they do other things, those wonderful ladies. They have a service where they take all of the thousands of flowers that are brought and left before the statues of Our Lady and make them into beautiful floral arrangements that are in all of the chapels. There's 25 chapels, three basilicas. So that's a service. And they deliver the flowers around and make the arrangements. They also sew the vestments because there'll be hundreds of priests at Mass. 
and they wash and iron them. They do other services inside. They staff the lost and found for people. So they do all of these hidden things. Imagine you had 60 masses and you have to have everything <laughs> present at 60 times in one day. So it takes a lot of coordination. So they do a lot of these other things in addition to going to the train station, the airport, to welcome and greet the people when they arrive. And they're in the exterior of the piscines to help the men and women that are waiting out front. So that's an Akai service. So you have the piscines, you have working in the hospital bed facilities as a service, or being in the St. Joseph's in the swing, doing all the different things. So that's one way of serving. And another one with us, so we're North American volunteers serving in those ways with the hospitality and also the Lords. And then you can serve on our pilgrimage. So that's where you have two choices. One is we call the A team. There are advance and after team. So they come ahead of us. They set everything up in the hospital bed facility. They put homemade quilts on the beds that people pray when they're sewing them or crocheting them or knitting them. And they completely set everything up, put our names on our doors and create order. They do a practice fire drills and make sure there's any issues that they need to evacuate us if they're prepared and know how to help us. And they set everything up for the dining room, the snacks and coffee makers and all kinds of things. And then they serve us that week. They serve us in the dining room. They provide our housekeeping services. And they are the hands and feet for us because they help to push all the people in wheelchairs. Then there's those of us who travel with the sick. And we usually travel out of different departure cities. So, for example, we might have East Coast, like a JFK. Many of the Spanish speakers will often fly out of Miami or Houston with us. Then we might have Los Angeles or Chicago or Beijing or some other city that where there's a cluster of people that we realize we have to make a departure city for them because there's a sufficient number. Or it's an access city, a gateway that's easy to arrive to because our country is so huge. Yeah. Texas is almost the size of France by itself. So people have to come from a distance to get to us to fly with us to Paris. And so that service is either on the advanced team, like I said, helping all the behind the scenes, the Bernadette things for us. And then there's the people who travel with the pilgrimage. So they can be companions or caregivers. So that means you can sign up and you can either share a room with the person or just be present with the person during the day. So you're with them in their meals and all the activities and things that we do. You go shopping together, have wine and ice cream together. It's almost like rent a family, except for it's love a family. Because most often, once you're together, they stay together and stay in touch, you know, years after the pilgrimage. They're still in touch with each other. So you can be a companion. You can be a caregiver. We have the leaders, of course, who lead out the flights. Then we have doctors, nurses, physical therapists. If you can imagine everything you need for a hospital stay all contained in a unit of people. Wow. If someone was coming on the pilgrimage and they're a quadriplegic or they require physical care, there are nurses who provide all of the things that, you know, for example, medications. Mm -hmm. So a companion or caregiver wouldn't be asked to do that. And then, of course, there's a physician. And what they're doing is they're not primary care providers to the pilgrims that are not pilgrimage. They have that at home. They're just supporting what the physician back home asked for them to have. So we just follow what that is and provide whatever that need can be. And then the companions and caregivers, the difference in that is a companion stays on this side of the bathroom door and the caregiver is <laughs> willing to go into the bathroom and help with bathing or dressing. And then we have wonderful physical therapists who come with us because it's arduous travel. Yeah. It's not easy to get there for an American. And we have people come with us from South America, Africa, across North America, and even Asia. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that. Transatlantic travel in the best of health is not enjoyable. 
but chronically ill people who are choosing to make this journey and pushing through, I imagine, significant discomfort in order to make it there. Is it as simple and profound as the hope of a cure at, at Lourdes, or, or what else is motivating them to make this trip? They say in Lourdes that Bernadette never had an appointment to see Our Lady. She just felt a mysterious pull to go to the grotto for the 15 days and after. It's the same thing with us. People feel this pull to go to the grotto. And I jokingly say, and some wives push their husbands <laughs> and some parents and friends or like my friend, you know, she really helped me with that. So I think that everybody comes for their own reason. But when we come, it's because we're there at the invitation of the mother of God. So it's a spiritual, even if a person isn't spiritual themselves, it's a spiritual invitation they've responded to, whether we realize it at the time or not. What kinds of healing have you witnessed at Lourdes? If people know one thing about Lourdes, they know about the association with miracle healing. Have you seen this? I actually have. I think we have to first clarify that a miracle is proclaimed by the local ordinary, the bishop where the person who has received this grace lives, be it a healing or whatever has been documented. So a bishop proclaims a miracle. At Lourdes, because there have been so many cures, and it's so famous for this, there's a process in the church. There's the medical bureau, because the bishop was wise. He wanted to know, hey, was that man really blind before? Because we can see now, but I didn't know him before. They have to go to the medical bureau if they choose to announce their claim, which most people don't. They get their cure and don't file anything in the medical bureau. Then they have to bring all their medical documentation, proving what was wrong with them. So the medical director at Lourdes is wonderful. Dr. Alessandro Dushkarashis, he says, I'm the most unusual doctor. People don't come to me when they're sick. They come to me when they're cured. <laughs> so he's got a reverse doctor. So he said, I have to prove that they were sick and then prove that there's no way to explain how they were cured. So there's an extensive scrutiny. They use something called the Lambertini criteria. It has to be a very serious disease in its worst state or condition that the cure happened instantaneously, suddenly, and it's permanent and long-lasting and could not have happened on its own. No intervention that could have made this possible, you know, medically or scientifically. So what they're saying is, they don't say it's a miracle. They say it's a cure we cannot explain. So it becomes an inexplicable cure. Then it's up to the bishop to decide if he wants to go through the process to publicly proclaim it a miracle. So there are 70 miracles proclaimed at Lourdes. There's 7,200 inexplicable cures on file of the hundreds of thousands, probably millions of cures that have taken place where they never went to the medical bureau. They don't even know the medical bureau exists. So I had the privilege. I was in the Piscines once and there was a woman who was very difficult. She was very stiff and crippled. I have no idea what was wrong with her. Didn't speak her language. And we had to very gingerly, carefully, tenderly help her to undress because she could not undress herself. She went into the baths and she walked out. Hmm. I don't know how that happened. I was not on that side of the curtain. I was on the side of dressing and undressing. But the woman, the nurse who came with her, was jumping up and down so much we had to calm her because we thought she was going <laughs> to jump on the other six people, <laughs> you know, and unintentionally injure them. I just witnessed that. I saw it, but I, I really have no idea what was wrong with her. I don't know anything, but I saw that myself. That was in that week when I was there with those 10 women. It was just extraordinary and profound. 
In addition to that, I do know other people who've had extraordinary healings and cures, one person 10 years in the medical bureau, so therefore she's not allowed to speak publicly, claiming a cure from Lou Gehrig's disease. So I know different people who've had experiences that are really extraordinary and profound, but for me, I think the sweetest miracles, the really extraordinary and profound are the healings of the heart or the mind or the soul that can't be x-rayed or blood tested so they don't qualify to the medical bureau. But I've just been a witness to so many women who've had abortions who say nothing filled this hole in me. And then I went to Lourdes and a liquid grace filled this hole. They feel whole again. They've forgiven themselves. Veterans of war who are suffering from what they did and what was done to them come to Lourdes and find peace. You can't x-ray that either. People suffering from addiction who walk away cured, people suffering from mental illness, people suffering from the wounds of crimes or terrible things done to them as children, and they come to Lourdes and they find wholeness and purity, and it changes their life. And also people who maybe are far away from God as they're dying, you know, they get dragged to Lourdes usually, maybe not on their own, or they come because they want to know something about God before they die, and they have a profound experience of finding faith and finding God's will for them. It's just extraordinary. It's beautiful. So those things don't really qualify, but we see a lot of that, a lot, a lot, a lot. You said at the beginning that you were drawn to Bernadette before you were drawn to Lord. What is it about Bernadette that appeals to you? Well, that's a really good question. So I mentioned my best friend, Teresa. She always had the patron saint, Therese of you, and most Catholics would know her as they call her the little flowers. I always called that her flower power. <laughs> and because she had this friend in heaven that she talked to her like she's really real. Well, she is real and she is in heaven. And so it's like having, uh, you know, somebody that can pull a favor for you, so to speak, a heavenly favor when you need help. And I always kind of was jealous of that. Not in a bad way. I just always thought, oh, I wish I had a St. Marlene. And my husband would say, there isn't one, you know. (laughs) 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 There's no canonized Marlene. And I'm not in the running. So I always wanted a patron saint, but never thought to ask for one. Just always wished I had one. And when we arrived in Nevers, the Convent Saint-Gildard, it's called the Espace Bernadette now, the place of Bernadette. We went there and I said to my friend, I tilted my head, in convents, there's always an exterior wall. It's like a boundary. Think of it like this enclosure of grace. It's sort of like a little amniotic sac where everything inside is all safe and protected by Holy Mother Church. And there's these big, massive gates that a vehicle can go through, but you can't see through them. And the walls are very, very tall, so it's a very quiet enclosure inside a big, bustling city, for example. And so when we entered inside the gate, I said to my friend, don't you feel this here? Do you see this? And she's smiling. She's very holy. And I said to her, look it. And I leaned my head outside the gate. And I said, this is one thing. I said, and I leaned my head inside the gate. And I said, feel it in here. It's like, this is holy. Out there, it's the world. But there's something different in here. Even the air is different. I said to her, it's fat. It's fat. It's filled with grace. Well, that means pregnant with grace, but I didn't know that expression. I bent over. I picked up the soil. I held up my hand. I said, see this? This is holy dirt. (laughs) I later learned they call that holy ground. But I didn't know that. (laughs) But that's how obvious it was to me. That's how it struck me so. And I haven't even really seen Bernadette yet. And then we come inside and there's Bernadette. So 
to me, my husband was saying, you know, really, they take their dead bodies and put them in a glass case? Are you kidding me? I said, I don't know. I, I haven't seen anything. So when we get there, and what it is, is this is the saint's body is preserved in a heavenly grace. We don't know how or why. Bernadette's not incorrupt and looking beautiful like the day she died because she saw the mother of God or because she's a saint. It's just a gift God gives us. And all of the conversions that take place in front of Bernadette, that's the miracles that happen there, so to speak. It's not about being cured. It's usually always somebody that comes there and it's cured. And I say, it's all of us sinners because Bernadette's job in the grotto, Our Lady said, pray for sinners. And Bernadette did. Well, we have little children come up in the convent or we have people come with us. They want to go up right next to the glass and the little ones put their nose on it. They're looking to see if she's moving her lips. She's still praying. Hmm. And little children will say, can you wake her up? You want to ask her a question. So she looked that beautiful all these years later. She dated in 1879. For me, coming to see Bernadette, I was just struck by her, something about her. I didn't know anything about her. I knew she was a poor little girl, that she was not educated, and that she saw the mother of God in the grotto. That's it. That's the whole scoop I had. <laughs> Nothing more than that. But standing there in front of her, I was just struck in a profound grace God gave me to really, I knew that she was my patroness. And so I was thrilled. I said to Teresa, Bernadette's mine. That's it. You know, poor thing. She got stuck with me, but Bernadette, St. Bernadette got stuck with me, but she's my patroness. And that way, by the time we got to Lourdes, I just couldn't wait because I was just so enamored with Bernadette and wanted to know more about her. Listening to you tell your story about volunteering at Lourdes, I can very quickly understand why the church officials jumped at the chance to rope you into <laughs> running this volunteer organization because I am sure I'm not alone in listening to you and feeling inspired and motivated. And I suspect that there will be people listening who are moved by your work and wondering about the possibilities of volunteering. So if there is someone in that position, how would you advise them? Can they join you? Can they volunteer with your organization? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I first want to say that when I first, you know, was meeting with the gentleman from Leo, uh, the north of France, and the canon lawyer was there, it was ultimately that they saw that I didn't have the wherewithal, the skills, the contacts. I didn't have all of that to make what was happening and growing to be Lord's Volunteers possible. It was in my inability, my incapability, that they knew this was from God, because there's no way I could pull that off. And it's still this way. I am the least likely, least qualified, but in a grace, all these wonderful things happen, and all these wonderful people come forward to do all these things that need to be done. And that's what we are. We're a raggle taggle, but I call it seraphic disorder, angelic disorder, or orderly, though. It's this amazing thing where we come together, you know, priest said to me, I was a good Irish woman because I have a problem for every solution. So I'm always looking for what else could go wrong so we can plan ahead and be ready and prepared to respond. And so other people like me who think, well, maybe, maybe you're out there thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm qualified. I don't know if I'm good enough. Each one of us has a gift and a grace that was given to us by God. And it's there, a talent or a skill. So all of us have something to offer. So we have different kinds of volunteers in different ways. So we have some people who don't have passports and aren't traveling, for example, to France. Of course, none of us can travel at this moment in time to France during the, the pandemic. But So they are our airport hospitality teams. They welcome people in from all over the place in the airport, 
and stay with them for the day, launch us off, send us off well, and then they do the same when we return. They're there to welcome us from the international flight, help us, hydrate us, get us ready, get us to the next plane or to the hotel to stay overnight to fly up the next day. They're, they stay with us and help us. So that's airport hospitality. That's something that takes place right here where we are or whatever city that we're in departing from in whatever country that is. And then we have people who volunteer, of course, on the pilgrimage. And if they want to make the journey to France, we find what is their interest, what are their skills, you know, what are their talents, and what would they like to offer or do. Sometimes people come with us as pilgrims. They say, you know, I just want to come and see what this is. And if I want to come back as a volunteer, I'll know. And that happens too sometimes. Many of the people who come with us came with us first on a pilgrimage and then said, we're inspired. I had such a profound experience. I want to return and, and give Thanksgiving. And so we have people who are medical professionals. Some of them are recently retired or maybe their license are expired because you're not licensed in France anyway. So if somebody's out there and they've got all those years of experience, of medical experience, they can come with us because we're providing supportive care. We're not providing primary care. And they join another team of like-minded medical professionals. So that's one of the things they say to us. They're so inspired by each other serving together in our charism and in the teachings of the church. And then we have people who come that do the housekeeping. There's always somebody who's very organized and orderly that helps us with their schedule. People who come and push people in wheelchairs and help pilgrims on their stretchers because we do have people that come that do need that. So everybody has something to give. We have a dining room hostess. Some people say, well, you know, I had eight children, so I'm really good in the kitchen. Great. We need you. <laughs> so there's different things to offer and different ways to volunteer. And we also share the message of Lords in parishes and schools and prisons. And so we have a lot of different volunteer opportunities that people contact us. And usually it surfaces up what it is that that volunteer is called to do. So contact us. We'd love to talk to you. At lordsvolunteers.org. Well, this has been a, a real pleasure. Marlene, I appreciate hearing about all of your work and, and I appreciate the work itself. It's quite a commitment that you have made. It's a joy and a privilege, and I never get tired of it. So, Lauren, let's talk about this walk to and past Lourdes. We're connecting from the GR65, which we had been walking since Le puy en -Velay. So we're diverting from the town of Lectour. In order to get to Lourdes, we have to follow a couple of different GRs. The first GR that we followed doesn't even have a number. It's not famous enough to even merit a number. It's the GR de Pays-Cours de Gascon. It's a lot easier when it's just GR65. That was a two-day walk from Lectour. We spent the night in Montestruc and then in Auch. So let's start there with just that two-day stretch. What stands out to you from that much less walked GR? It was, it felt like we were trailblazing a little bit at points. There was no one else around. It was just our group. And it was also really nice to see a bit of the countryside that did not cater to pilgrims. It was not super eventful, but interesting to see what France is like outside of the road to Santiago. Yeah, it was really nice leaving Lectour, the hills covered with sunflowers at that point. You know, we were still in the sunflower zone. 
We were trailblazing at times because we actually even left this GR in order to deviate through the center of the town of Florence because this GR doesn't actually go through there, which seemed like a shame in my head when I planned it and would have been an even greater shame because it was a market day when we passed through. And not just like any market day, it was a great market day. It was a great market day. (laughs) What did you buy? I don't think I bought anything. I Not even a pastry? Oh, probably a pastry. <laughs> but I, I remember tasting some snails that someone else had bought and sort of begrudgingly swallowing them, even though I thought they were ugh, a little rubbery. And we had some people who had lost clothes along the way who went to buy clothes at the market. I do remember that day for I believe it was an organ concert that was playing in the church. That was really cool. I walked in and people were praying maybe, and there was some sort of ceremony going on. And I felt bad because of course, whatever group of us walked into the church were not being quiet. But once we sort of quieted down, it was really nice to hear the organs. And you could even hear them outside in the courtyard, outside of the church. It was really beautiful there. Yeah, it was a wild distinction because it was it was lively and chaotic outside and the, the market was right outside the doors of the church. And then you walk inside and it's quiet. There's the organ playing. There are candle lights up around the interior. It was just a really striking contrast. Yeah, that sticks in my memory too. And then we had a longer day to Osh after that. So it was like 20 kilometers to Montestruc and then 30 kilometers onto Osh and Not as much of note, I thought, along that walk. Certainly no thriving market day. And I know Mm -hmm. in my head, a lot of my focus was on getting to Osh because I had read about it. It was a good-sized city. Anything stand out to you about the way there? When we were maybe five kilometers away, maybe a little less, we came around a corner and we could see Osh and the flying buttresses sort of tumbling down the hillside at the dramatic cathedral in the distance. That was definitely a highlight because the architecture of Osh sort of coming off of that hillside is so beautiful. So you saw the flying buttresses from a distance. How was that church, that cathedral up close? That was one of my top three cathedrals, I think, of our trip. It was incredibly beautiful. I remember taking pictures from the entrance because there's a little porch almost, where you were still outside of the church, but you were underneath and sort of within this little Mm -hmm. sculptural area. And there were gates on them, gilded gates. You could look up at them against the gray skies that we had on that day. And it was very, very powerful. I really loved that church. And if I'm remembering correctly, that was where they had a really amazing choir, engraved wood choir. And that was also one of my favorite things about that cathedral. It's stunning. I mean, that was definitely one of the highlights of this approach. The other thing that stands out in my memory from Osh is the staircase that leads Mm -hmm. down to the river. It's not often on pilgrimage that you would voluntarily seek out extra stairs, but it's just a big dramatic staircase that leads from the upper town down to the river that is distinct. There's nothing else like it along this walk. Mm-hmm. So on Osh, we joined the GR653. And the GR653 is one of the four major pilgrim roads through France. It is known more often as the Arles route. 
we were then on that for a couple days. And the walk from there, it was about two plus days that we were on the GR653. That led us first to Lille de Nantes and then on to Marciac. Those were the two nights that we spent on the GR653 walking. What is most vivid in your mind from that part? I feel like there was a really good bakery somewhere along there. <laughs> well, it's in France. <laughs> I, of course, of course. <laughs> I think it was in Marciac, maybe. You go straight to the end in the bakery. Yeah, Marciac. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Who did we stay with? Lille de No, that was... Edna. Edna. Okay. Yeah, I have a lot to say about that <laughs> stay. That was the weirdest stay Lille de No was so small and sort of run down with just this random chateau on the edge, which of course we couldn't get into because they happened to be closed that day, even though normally you can walk through it. But Edna, the most slightly grumpy, eclectic British woman, just randomly living in this tiny town and having a and b there, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I remember her puppy was very cute, but was not well potty trained. (laughs) And the beds were a bit rickety. I remember Lila and I had to share a bed and we were worried that it would collapse underneath us in the middle of the night. But it was a lot of fun to stay there. A weird day, but it was a lot of fun. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I'd call Edna grumpy, but certainly fussy, very particular. But, you know, it's funny that you went straight to the bakery and it might have something to do with the fact that we didn't have a lot of chances for pastries between Osh and Marciac. One of the things that stands out for me in this stretch being on the GR653 is I've read and heard about the decline of French villages and people moving away and businesses closing down. It's a similar story to what you hear about small town America in a lot of ways. But on the GR65 you don't really notice that, right? Like there's enough pilgrim traffic to keep a number of businesses functional, at least during peak pilgrim season. But when we got on this GR653, all of a sudden you would see shuttered groceries, groceries that seem to have been closed for 10 years and shuttered Mm -hmm. bakeries. So one of the challenges of this stretch was thinking and hoping that there would be something to eat. And then they're in fact not being something to eat and Mm -hmm. needing to be better planners and more proactive about our calories than we ever needed to be on the GR65. Mm -hmm. Edna's Place is also a perfect example of that because that used to be a hotel. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, think about the layout. Like you go upstairs, it's one room after another en suite with a rickety electrically challenged shower in each room and creaky old beds that were probably the beds in the hotel when it operated however many years ago, the wallpaper still clinging into place. (laughs) When Edna moved there, she told us this story. She moved there to retire. She didn't know what she was going to do with her life. And then like a few pilgrims dropped by and like they had read that there were accommodations there. But she was now the owner and it was her home. It wasn't a hotel, but then she was like, yeah, what the hell? (laughs) And so the former hotel that became a house became like a a place for pilgrims to stay. And she just threw herself into it. It's seen better days, Mm -hmm. but she certainly put in a lot of work to make us feel well cared for and provided dinner, breakfast and all of that. So yeah, she was a lot of fun. (laughs) 
So then we carried on to Marciac. Marciac is famous for a jazz festival mm-hmm. and we stayed there. I think you slept in unusual accommodation in Marciac. Did I? What, which one was Marciac? I have to look at pictures. You were in the medieval tower. <gasps> oh, I loved Marciac. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Yes, we called it the Algerian Jeet because I think one of the two owners either was of Algerian heritage or had grown up in Algeria. That was a super fun jeet. The tower was incredible. I immediately claimed the top floor along with a bunch of other people. There were a lot of stairs. That was the only problem. I continually made these mistakes thinking that the top floor of a tower would be really, really cool to sleep in. And yet it was three flights of stairs up and I immediately regretted it. The hosts were very kind, prepared one of the most distinct dinners we had on the trip. It was amazing. The goat stew and all of the different kinds of rice or couscous, maybe? I don't remember which. Couscous. Yeah, that was one of my top three favorite dinners, I think. And I think most people in our group would agree. I would say the name of the jeet, but it starts with an L followed by all five vowels. So I'm <laughs> not going to touch it, mm-hmm. but, uh, but yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> from from Marciac, we then had a little bit more on the GR653 and we got to the village of Malbourget where we would leave it soon after to go on to the GR101. And that's the route that Lourdes is on, the GR101. So it takes a little finagling to get there, but it's all reasonably signposted. I should note our hosts from the previous night in Marciac were not only good cooks, not only nice to be around at dinner. They also then drove one of our passports (laughs) to us in Malvergette that was left behind. So they're kind in many ways. But this was the beginning of a two-day stretch to Lourdes that was our most intensive stretch of walking. Because in the same way that food facilities were limited in this stretch, accommodation options for pilgrims were also limited, and especially for a group of our size. So we gunned it. We had a 38-kilometer day to Tarastes, and then an almost equivalent day to Lourdes. It was tiring. Yeah. And I had read bits and pieces about what was waiting for us that first night in the Abbey in Tarastes, but... (laughs) Like, there's not that much about it online. So I didn't have total clarity on what we were getting ourselves into. What were we getting ourselves into, Lauren? (laughs) Well, after a very long walk, especially because even the day before to Marciac, it was a decently long walk, I think, above 30K. And it was hot. So it was the second day of just being exhausted. On the walk up, we crossed paths with a group from... A French church, a French Catholic youth group who was making a pilgrimage to Lourdes. So that was a lot of fun. Separate just from the accommodation, we finally saw other people our age for the first time and the last time the entire trip, other pilgrims our age. That was a lot of fun. Unfortunately for us, even our one group member who theoretically spoke French did not speak much French. And we didn't want to bother Janelle um, to have her translate for us. So there was not a lot of interaction that happened with them. But I remember coming up to the Abbey. There's a long driveway almost as you walk up and you just see the Abbey through the trees. And 
I was certainly thinking to myself, I'm sure other people were thinking the same. What is this building? Why are we staying in like this beautiful, very medieval looking, enormous building with its big tower that we could see from the distance? And so as we came up, I'm actually not surprised that you said there's not much about it online. The priest who owns the Abbey was actually, I think it might have topped Edna in terms of being the most eclectic host that we had the entire time we were on pilgrimage. It was endearing and also really inspiring that the restoration of the Abbey was his whole life and everything that he cared about. The Abbey was incredible. There were definitely parts that weren't fully restored. It was always, as he said, a work in progress. But wow, that was an amazing building. I remember that was actually kind of a busy afternoon, at least for me. Some people went to nap, but I went on a garden tour um, with him as he took us through his like strange tropical plants that are, were really rare and that he just loved to talk about. And Janelle, of course, translated for us. And then I went to mass there. It was definitely a different experience from the masses we had gone to before because it was much more sort of modern, young, like youth oriented, certainly because the youth group was there. I remember there was a priest with a guitar who sat in the front and we all sang along. I felt like I was at summer camp a little bit. So that was a lot of fun. And then after that, of course, the most iconic experience of the Abbey, the priest rang the bells and we all went up into the tower. It hurt. Right underneath the bells. <laughs> right underneath the bells. It hurt my ears a lot. I could feel my bones vibrating for honestly a while afterwards while the bells were ringing and we made it to the top of the bell tower and looked out we could see lord in the distance and that was incredible that was probably my top highlight from that part of the walk was seeing lord with the bells ringing from the top of the tower i mean you mentioned this but this is just one man's passion and mm-hmm. and it just came through so clearly and it's it's funny because it's the the legacy of another man's passion. You know, you said it looks medieval, but it was built in the 19th century. A Jewish German musician converted to Catholicism, decided he wanted to build a a convent in a nice tucked away part of France, got the land, cleared out the space, built it up, and then it declined. It became an internment camp for German prisoners in World War I. And then it was briefly a hotel. And then in the 1970s, it was abandoned and like left to nature and crumbled. And so it's only in recent history that this other priest has come in and rebuilt it. Mm -hmm. And so those bells he's so proud of because like he's responsible for them being back up and functional. Mm -hmm. And the garden, like he pointed out every plant in that garden, right? (laughs) Like that was a long (laughs) garden tour. It was. (laughs) But he's just so invested in it. It was remarkable. I mean, I think people are going to follow this route in order to go to Lord, but like it's a Lord Tarastase two part experience. You've got to take the night there. Yeah, 100%. You will definitely have an experience that you don't expect. You cannot predict um, what strange wonders you will find at the Abbey Tarastase. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's an impressive place. I I don't know how different it would be. I mean, it it was 
remarkable timing that we were there with our group at the same time as that youth group. I don't know how different it would be if you were a solitary pilgrim showing up there. I don't know how it would diverge from what we experienced. Obviously, it would be less lively in a lot of ways, but mm-hmm. the priest's still there. Yeah. <laughs> He's got enough juice to, yeah. <laughs> to compensate. So the next day, we're on to Lord, And I don't know that we need to talk about the walk at all. Like, Oof. let's get to Lord. Yeah. <laughs> because that's really ultimately what we want to spend a good chunk of time talking about. So let's walk through it in a few parts. First impressions of Lourdes. As we walked into town, as we arrived, as we went to our accommodation, can you put yourself back into that mindset? Like, what were your first thoughts? Immediately coming into town, we walked in first to the commercial, like residential part of the town, because the shrine itself is on the other side. At first, I was glad to see a nice bustling town It had a city feel, even though it's certainly not the size of the city. Tall buildings, people everywhere. And I was very excited to see that. Plenty of food options after a stretch (laughs) of not having very many food options. I remember the group celebrating um, (laughs) the opportunity for ice cream um, after a long, long period of no ice cream. I was also struck by how touristy it was because nowhere we had gone so far, except for just our brief time in Paris flying in, had been touristy at all, except for maybe Moncouc, which had sold um, a couple of touristy things. But there was probably only one gift shop in the entire town of Moncouc. And in Lourdes, the entire town seems like it's a gift shop. I mean, every single building pretty much is a hotel and the lower floor of every single one of those is either a gift shop or a restaurant of some sort. So it really felt like, well, first of all, we were back to civilization. And second of all, that we were somewhere that people really cared about, that people knew about and cared about and wanted to remember since our accommodation was also, it was right by the shrine. It was also sort of on the other side of the shrine. We got to see Lourdes itself and the cathedral before we dropped all of our stuff off. And the walk up to the cathedral is amazing. Obviously, it's meant to inspire you a walking down the road with all of the grass and with all of these other pilgrims informally processing towards the cathedral together. And I think the most incredible thing about Lourdes was not necessarily these processions, which were amazing, but seeing the sort of gilded dome of that lower church in the sunlight. I remember taking pictures of that, that being one of my favorite parts. That, along with later in the evening, the candlelight procession, that was a really, really interesting day because (laughs) all along, there were not a lot of other pilgrims. We did have some people that we didn't even get to know, but we sort of kept passing them, maybe stayed at the same places as them a few nights in a row, but then we would lose track and they would generally fall behind our group. In Lourdes, it was incredible to be in a place where everyone was a pilgrim, even though we were some of the very, very few that had walked there. There was just this group spirit and group hope 
and a communal group purpose. We were all there for Lord, not for the beautiful countryside and not for the tchotchkes sold in the gift shops, but really there for the shrine, which was really incredible. And that I remember really feeling that communal pilgrim hope, I would say, in the candlelight procession. And I really valued that experience. So I want to talk more about the candlelight procession, but I want to move somewhat chronologically. Mm-hmm. And before that, there is the afternoon procession mm-hmm. that brings together these large groups. I mean, that's one of the striking things of, about Lord is that everyone seems to come in groups. Mm-hmm. And particularly it's groups of the sick, of the injured, all brought together with groups of caregivers. They come together in the afternoon for a procession that precedes the candlelight part. It was a striking thing to behold, like watching it from the side. Mm -hmm. And part of it for me is I have been so conditioned to thinking of illness and injury as things that result in you being isolated that to see people brought together in large groups and processed along the river It's really memorable to me. What do you remember from Mm -hmm. that? I remember right before the procession, there was a mass or some sort of ceremony where the people, at least at the front of the group, were all sort of gathered around and maybe it was just some sort of blessing. And then a group of priests led the procession around down the river and then also around the sort of circular road that sits in front of the cathedral And I also remember watching that from the sidelines and being really amazed because also I had never seen such a large group of people looking for healing. And usually you see people as individuals in hospitals and as you said, isolated individuals, but for people to come together and there were hundreds of them, maybe even probably over a thousand people who were just moving together, either in their wheelchairs or in gurneys even, or just walking along, but moving together towards the holy baths in hope of a cure. That was something that I had never experienced before. And I thought it was really powerful. It actually left me feeling deeply conflicted. I remember peeling off from the torchlight procession later, Janelle and I walked up the Calvary Hill just to try to get away from people (laughs) for a Mm -hmm. little bit. And I think part of what I was wrestling with was it's some of the, the deepest ambivalence I've ever felt because on one hand I was angry Mm -hmm. because I was thinking about the intense discomfort that many of those people had been pushed through, had chosen to push themselves through, but still been pushed through in order to travel from wherever their homes were, right? Mm -hmm. Like flying, train, all of the jostling, the dislocation, like all of that stuff in order to come to this place where if we just go by the records of Lourdes' own medical department, Mm -hmm. the odds of a miracle cure are very much against them. Mm -hmm. When you add in like what you talked about, like the commercial aspect of Lourdes, it immediately made me very cynical who are all of these people making money 
off of the hopes of the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I did go back to the fact that so often we treat illness as something that has a stigma attached to it, that needs to be marginalized and isolated. And so in this case, these people are the center. Mm -hmm. They're honored and they receive around the clock attention and care and they get hope as well and community. And there's value in that. Like even if the miracle cure is not on the table, there's something to be said for that as being a valuable experience that's worth the trouble. Did any of that hit you as you were watching it? The commercial aspect of Lord did bother me a little bit as well, but I was really struck by how much hope people had there. And I keep sort of coming back to this word of hope. But as I said before, usually where you find these amounts, these numbers of people who are ill or injured, it's in a hospital. Those are not hopeful places. As much as modern medicine has done for us and how hospitals are incredibly important and good institutions, they're not happy places to be. I really came away with the sense that even though they would have known, statistically, they can't have a hope for a miracle cure, but they can still have hope anyway. Mm. And it doesn't have to be for a cure, but for that community, as you mentioned, and also for just a relief. Usually, if they're one of the more sick people there and they're in a wheelchair or in a gurney, they would be in a hospital wishing that their illness would go away. But instead of wishing now, they're outside, they're in a beautiful place. They're not wishing, but they're hoping. And they can actually maybe believe that there's a chance that they will be healed. And that struck me, definitely. So you were on the sideline for that procession, and then you were in the middle of it for the torchlight procession. Mm -hmm. So describe the torchlight procession, what that involved and what that was like in more detail. That was a really strange experience for me because I am not Catholic, so I've never done a religious experience in such a large group before, I guess I would say. And so I was with most of the other people in our group. We had bought candles. Actually, a couple of us were given for free. And then the second group that had come along to the same shop were accidentally a little bit rude to the shopkeeper. So she made them pay for the candles. <laughs> then we put our candles in these beautiful paper dripping wax grabbers, I guess I would say. They were white paper with blue drawings of the Virgin Mary and the words to different prayers um, written on them for those who didn't know them. It's hard to describe. First of all, I was exhausted because usually our bedtime was not long after sunset. Um, so I was nearing my bedtime and my feet hurt just as much as they always did. But the candlelight imagery is really powerful at nighttime. Mm -hmm. You can't really help but get swept up in the flickering light and all of the praying and singing that's happening around you. Although I was exhausted, I still definitely enjoyed that experience, especially because it was another one of those pilgrimage group experiences that we only had at Lord because mm -hmm. the routes we were walking were so sparsely walked. And 
just to have this moment with so many pilgrims, it was really welcome. Because in general, I did like, I didn't want to be on a busy path. I didn't want to be in touristy areas. But having that one moment where we could be in a community of pilgrims was really interesting. It was a long day. It was. <laughs> that, was a, that was a full day. But we had a very short day the next. And what that meant was that if people wanted to go and bathe in the grotto, they could. And if they didn't, they could lounge around a bit. It was about 50-50 in the group. What did you decide? I bathed in the holy baths. In some ways, I regretted it. <laughs> um, I'll qualify what I said. I didn't regret doing it, but I did not enjoy it. That was very different than my other experiences on the day before in Lourdes. So first of all, we got up really early. We went and we got in line before the baths even opened. And yet, at least the girls, it took less time for the guys who had a separate line. But we sat there in the cold for three hours waiting to be admitted into the baths. I guess the experience probably would have been more powerful for me if I had known these prayers and if I had been Catholic. But um, there was one woman who was leading the entire group of women in reciting Ave Maria the entire time. So I can still hear her voice in my head when I talk about this. I sometimes get Ave Maria stuck in my head in her voice because it just went on and on for so long. That was a little bit of a difficult experience waiting outside the baths. And then when we got inside, it was very strange and it was not what I expected. They make you strip fully naked, unless you're a guy. I don't think they made the guys fully strip. I don't actually remember, but at least for us, you had to strip fully naked. Then they wrapped you in a white linen sheet, basically. There were a couple of volunteers in each bathtub of the grotto that would dip you into freezing cold water. And I think the strangest part of that for me was that I felt completely out of place. During the Ave Marias, I didn't know the words. I didn't necessarily want to know the words and I didn't feel the need to recite them. And then once I got inside, being surrounded by, I think there were four volunteers who were all clearly very devout Catholics and who told me to say my prayers to Mary before they dipped me into the freezing water. I felt out of place. It was really when this woman said to me, say your prayers to Mary, that I felt like, why am I here if I don't believe in the holy water? And if I don't personally say prayers to Mary, then I feel like I'm taking away from this experience from people who do believe that. But I'm still glad that I experienced that. It was a time to really think about what I believed as a Protestant and also like how pilgrimage fits into that, because obviously pilgrimage is not a Protestant practice. So I would say there are parts of Lourdes that were very powerful for people of any religion or lack thereof. I think the candlelight procession is at least for most people just a powerful community experience, if not a religious one. But the holy baths are very specific, and I felt completely out of place there. 
And then you had to go walking after that. <laughs> <Yep>. So <laughs> we'll very briefly cover the walk after. We'll just land mm-hmm. on a few points. But it's about six days going from Lourdes to Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. And so along the way for, for us, we stayed in Lestel Betharam, which also has some miracles associated with it historically. Arudi, Oloron Samarie, L'Hôpital Saint-Blaise, Saint-Just Ibar. That was our lone long day in this stretch. And then on to Saint-Jean. So what are a couple of highlights for you from that six-day stretch? Well, the walking was incredible. We were in the foothills that whole mm. time, pretty much. Everything was luscious and green and very hilly. We had an unexpected, really difficult hilly day, I think, somewhere in there that we didn't realize would be so much up and down. And I believe one of those days was also our hardest day. Our longest day? Yeah. It was both the longest and the most elevation change, I think, Mm -hmm. of any day that we had had. It was difficult walking, but I actually, I think we were so, (laughs) we were so much stronger at that Mm -hmm. point that even though it was difficult, I don't think anything was as hard as our second day when we did that 400 meter uphill just right out of Money Stroll. Yes. So it was very encouraging to do that 40K day with so much up and down. And yet it was so much easier, incredibly easier for me than our second day with that 400 meter uphill. I also remember, I think our second to last day of walking, we referred to as Alien Dreamland Day because (laughs) There was a lot of fog and the clouds had just completely descended on the hill that we were walking up. We sort of got separated into groups and you could not see the group in front of you or the group behind you, no matter how close they were. You could barely see your hand in front of your face for part of it. You couldn't see anything except the grass underneath your feet and some really strange looking plants. Maybe that was just part of the ambiance of the day. They were really normal plants, but we just thought they were weird because it was so foggy. But that was a little bit discouraging because we kept walking up the hill, but it was so muddy. The ground was so saturated with the water that had come from the fog that every two steps up, you sort of slid back about a step. At a certain point, I was walking with Finn and David And we were just in sort of grumpy silence with David's signature. He was wearing his chakas, so his slaps of his feet hitting the ground. (laughs) Yeah, that was one of the strangest days of walking we had through the fog with no end in sight. And then we finally came to the end of the GR78, I think it was. Yeah, GR78. And it said Fiend, GR78. (laughs) And of course, I took a picture of it because it said Finn and I was walking with Finn. But we came to the end and we were back to the GR65. There was a little sign that said we only had three kilometers left or something like that to Saint-Jean. And that was the most exciting moment of the day to know that we were almost there, even though it felt like we had been walking forever at that point through the fog and not getting anywhere. The GR78 is the Voie du Piment, which based on what we saw, must be a lovely walk along the foothills of the Mm -hmm. Pyrenees. 
So I'm impressed by your commitment to talking about the root, but let's wrap up by you talking about the lint chocolate factory in Oleron summary. Oh my goodness. That was one of my probably top five favorite moments of the trip. The amount of joy that each one of us felt approaching this gigantic white building and seeing the cursive lint on the front. Um, <laughs> we were so, so happy. I remember walking in the doors. That's probably the largest chocolate store I've ever been to in my entire life. And it's just this random town in the middle of nowhere in Southern France. For some reason, there's just this entire lint store there. I had no idea why, but I didn't question it. We walked in and the smell just hit you. And it felt like, I'm not exaggerating when I say like, I forgot that my feet hurt. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> it was a wonderful place to be after a couple of really, really long days of walking. And we all purchased an immense amount of chocolate, which eventually melted on a couple of our packs. Thankfully, I was spared from that, but definitely some of the boys got their packs covered in chocolate. What a wonderful place. I would recommend that for anyone. Anyone even thinking about walking to Lourdes, just keep going until you get to Lint. A walking pilgrimage that includes Lord is marvelous. I heartily recommend it. But I also recognize that the barrage of root numbers that Lauren and I referenced could be a lot to take in. Here's an attempt at a concise review of the options. The simplest approach would be to just follow the GR78, the Voie du Piment, which links Lourdes and the GR65 just before Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port. It gets you almost all the way there. Lourdes has good transportation connections with a small airport and a train station. If you gave yourself a week to make the walk to Saint-Jean, you'd have manageable daily distances and a good opportunity to get your legs under you before you make the crossing of the Pyrenees. You could pick up the GR78 even earlier, though. It originates in Carcassonne, one of the most spectacular walled towns in France. Alternately, the GR653, the Arles route, could be picked up in Arles or Toulouse, which also has an airport, and then followed until just after Malbourget, where you would join the GR101 to Lourdes. Or the most complicated approach, which is what we did, still totally manageable. Follow the GR65, the Voie Podiensis, until Lectour. Walk the GR de Pays pour de Gascon to Auch from there. Then it's the GR653, the GR101, and the GR78. Easy. And if you've already walked from Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, you don't even have to go back that far. From Oloron, Saint-Marie, on the GR101, that's the chocolate town, you can head south and follow the Camino Aragonese over the Pyrenees, joining the Camino Francais near Puente la Reina. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you walk it, it's worth it. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Marlene Watkins. You can find her organization, the Our Lady of Lourdes Hospitality North American Volunteers, and offer to volunteer yourself at lourdesvolunteers.org. Thanks as well to Lauren Selden. Give her a few years, and I'm sure she'll have a book to share with you. 
Camino Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. Thank you, as always, for listening.